Well, good morning. So glad you are here today. Um, we're going to look at the Wellspring Disciplines and primarily focus on Proverbs 4, 23, which Jacob did such a great job on last week. So I feel like it's just kind of an extension of that. But um, So the Wellspring Purpose, if you can look at your notebooks... is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts towards Jesus Christ with the Word of God so that they live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. Um, Can I have three people read the three disciplines for us? If I could have volunteers. Katie, why don't you do the first one? And Olivia, you can do the second one. And... Soul, you can do the third one. When I'm standing up front, I always forget people's names. I'm so sorry if I forget your name. Okay, go ahead. The faithful woman of God shepherds her heart worshipfully toward God through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. Discipline to the home. The faithful woman of God is concerned for those in her home and ministers to them with her heart fixed on God and his word. Discipline to with a heart fixed on God and keeping her God-given ministry within her home and priorities. The faithful woman of God steps into the church in every part of life to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. Great. And the verse <coughs> that this <coughs> excuse me is based on is Proverbs four twenty three. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Well, I'm gonna depend on you a lot for this uh, discipline discussion. It's it's uh my style. So what we're going to do is use a tool that I'm very familiar with, although you may not be, unless you're Jill Drent. (laughs) We're going to use um, the tool of asking questions to glean what we can from our verse, okay? And we're going to use questions that fit into five different categories. Definition, comparison, circumstance, relationship, and testimony. So I'm going to ask you guys the questions. So I would love to hear from you and we'll just see what we can pull from this verse just from spending time together already this year and just from our knowledge, current knowledge of what God's word has to say. So we're going to start with questions of definition. So looking at our verse and also, I wish I had used the marker for this, but, um, the term shepherd and it's really closely tied into what the verse is talking about when we shepherd our hearts so um any questions i ask you can apply to the verse itself but also to the term shepherd so um are there any terms or words that we can define or should define in this verse we can use our own common knowledge of a word to define it, but also if anyone wants to pull open their phones and look at a dictionary to define anything. Olivia? Regard. Okay, guard. Defend. Defend. Mm -hmm. Any other ways we can define the word guard? Protect. 
keep or tend. It's a good one to to dig a little. It's like we talk about it all the time, but what is our heart? Part of it is like the part of me that makes me me. You know, I'm not just a body. I'm. I have affections and desires and preferences and thoughts and feelings and. Okay. Any other definitions? Wellspring. Mm-hmm. It's a good one. What is a wellspring? A source. source. (laughs) Technically speaking, it would be a water source. Mm -hmm. And here it's a source. It's telling us it's a source of life or a source of our life. Um, What about life? What does that mean by that? It's not everybody's life. It's not like human life. It's Mm -hmm. my own. Mm -hmm. Mm I don't know if there's a different word for like outcome. Like, yeah. Yeah, outcome, like, who can help Olivia with that? Yeah. Maybe, like, what we go about doing. We just say, like, my life is this, or my life is this, and it is. It's the outside part of who I am, I guess. (laughs) Great. Um, So another type of definition, before we even move on to the next type of question, would be, um, I wanted to look at the parts of speech just a tiny, tiny bit, if I could. Um, 
So I want to think, um, where's the verb in our sentence? Guard. And um, I'm kind of going really fast here, but does anyone know what the subject of the sentence is? So heart would be a noun, but the subject of the sentence is actually um, implied here, and then we're told you guard your heart. It's imperative, so it's a command or an instruction. So that's something my small group heard about last week, is or last time, was um, just how... Um, it's easy to, for me anyway to attend things. I go to small group, I go to equipping hour, I go to service, I go to Wellspring. And yet it's tempting to let like those things passively try to shepherd me or do things to me. <laughs> and in reality, there is, um, it's saying you guard your heart. You're the one who ultimately has to do that, obviously with the Lord's help. And then it's active I'm the one doing that, so no one is doing that for me, really. Um, I have the Holy Spirit's help, but it's not the job of my elders to do that for me. Um, they can give me tools, and they can equip me and instruct me, which is such a blessing. And then my job is to guard my heart. So, okay. Woo! All right. Just, like, let's ask one or two comparison questions. Um are there any verses or ideas from scripture that are similar to this? Any verses you know or any other places that tell us to do this or talk about this same idea? Okay. Great. remember what it is, but there's one that says examine yourself and examine your heart to see if you have a faith. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Our hearts are deceitful. Mm-hmm. Okay, here's another question. How is guarding a heart different than guarding other things? Or how is guarding a heart the same as guarding other things in this world or in our lives? You can guard your loved ones just as you would your heart in protecting it. Mm -hmm. Guard your thoughts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was working on that this morning, really, a lot. It's different in the sense that there's no break from guarding your heart. Like, there might be on or off times, but guarding your heart is not something that we can take care of. And the verse says, above all else, but there's nothing more important than guarding your heart. I'm going to just ask one more, even though I have a whole other page. We could just do this all day long, but, which I love. Um, 
So a question of circumstance that I would typically ask when I'm looking at a Bible verse would be, do the verses before or after provide context? Does anyone have it open? So does the verse, do verses before or after this provide any context to help us understand it? Well, sure, but you can just skim it because my thought is that there isn't a lot of context. But so, do you guys agree that the verses before and after help us very much? Like, like in like a narrative passage, we would probably want to read the whole story. Does this assist us in understanding it better? Not usually with Proverbs. However, the reason why I ask this is because where is this verse found? Proverbs. So maybe we can just think about it that as our context. What is the context of the book of Proverbs? Wisdom and foolishness. So what can we glean from that? Just that about this verse. The fact that it's in the book of Proverbs. It's wise. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'll stop there. Maybe I'll sign up for another day and I'll ask more of my questions. But um, the, the final type of question that I was going to ask falls under the category of testimony. And part of that is discovering what others have to say about the topic. And so <clears throat> I wanted to introduce my husband um, by saying that he... works very hard to do this every day and it is a blessing to our home and it was even this morning as I was grappling with a lot of important things in my heart and things that I was struggling with and he regularly brings me to God's word and cares for me and my family in that way Um, but it comes from his diligent study each morning and prayer for us and coming before the Lord in his own weaknesses and with his own struggles, just knowing that God is the source of of any wisdom. And so I just wanted to um, call him up here and um, just tell you guys that he's a great example of this and this uh, message today is an outpouring of that. I hope you're encouraged. Well, that was a little bit more of an emotional introduction than I'm used to. As we get started, before we get started, how about we go ahead and we pray? God, I am thankful that your word has so much instruction for us. You tell us about who you are, the Holy One the creator. You tell us who we are, sinful man and women, sinful humanity. And God, you tell us about the solution. You tell us about Christ. You tell us how to live with one another, to carry out these biblical relationships. And I pray, Lord, as we are uh, surveying your word, many different passages that those passages that you would just, your Holy Spirit would apply them to our hearts and it would bear much fruit, bear much fruit in our lives, bear much fruit in our church. 
And Jesus, may you get all the glory. And that's always in your great name we pray. Amen. So this morning, we are going to be talking about biblical relationships. This is, you know, we, we have the different disciplines, discipline one, two, and three. This is discipline number three, related to the ministry, how we interact with one another. And this morning, it, it, it's all about relationships, and specifically relationships within the local church. And the tool that we're going to use to do this is something called the one another's. If you've been a Christian for any period of time, you've probably heard, perhaps even studied the one another's. The one another's are a tool for surveying scripture for how we are to practice biblical relationships within the local church. The one another's don't capture everything about how believers relate to one another, but they are an extremely helpful tool. And so how did, how did the one another's get come up with? How did we, how did we come up with these things? Uh, in my small group, uh, we spent, I think it was like four and a half years studying the one another's, walking very slowly through all of them. I did a, a study on them. And if you Google one another's, many different, uh, you, you'll see different lists. They vary a little bit depending on how it was put together. The way that I put this together was by uh, looking at all the different uses of one another in my translation, which was the, the NAS. And one another is a tiny little phrase. It's a simple adjective pronoun pair. And in my translation, it shows up 108 times in 101 verses in the New Testament. There are primarily two Greek pronouns that are used that get translated into that English phrase, one another. Of those 101 verses, some are simply narrative passages explaining what's going on. Like in Mark eight sixteen, they began to discuss with one another that they had no bread. However, we want to look for the imperative. We want to look for the commands or expectations for how believers are to relate to each other. There are some of the one another commands that don't apply. Some like Matthew uh, 24, 10, betray one another, hate one another. Revelation 6, 4, slay one another. <laughs> Those are not what we're looking for. But the results of filtering that whole list down, doing that study and filtering that all down, we get 38 different one another's that are contained in 59 different verses or passages. For example, there are 14 different uses of love one another. They're found in two of the Gospels, Mark and John, and they're found in 16 out of the 27 books in the New Testament. And the vast majority of these one another's are explicit commands or expectations for how believers are to interact with one another. These are commands, and the vast majority of these commands are to be carried out within the local church. Look around this room this morning. When you think of your small group, on Sunday morning, look around at who's here on a Sunday morning or Sunday evening. This is who we're to be practicing these one another's with. And my hope and desire this morning is to provide some familiarity or perhaps more familiarity with them so that they stand out in Scripture as we're reading through these things so that they just stand out so that you'll be practicing them better or more effectively within the body and specifically here within the body of GBC. 
And my hope also after going through this is that you'll see that the obedient Christian, you, me, must be in close biblical relationships with fellow believers within the local church and here Grace Bible Church. And evidence of those close biblical relationships is the practice of the one another's with one another here at GBC. The one another's are essentially a manual for biblical relationships in the local church. And one of the things we're not going to do this morning is we're not going to pit against each other passages that talk about believers loving other believers or even unbelievers. All of those passages coexist and complement each other. But this morning, we're going to specifically focus on what God's word has to say about the one another's and these biblical relationships within the local church. And you guys should pre- you guys should have this in your packet. It might be helpful to pull it out. I'm going to reference it a number of times, approximately six times, as we're going through this. You'll see all the different one another's. There's six different categories that have been created, and all the verse references. All 38 one another's are here. All the verse references are here, and all their uses are here. So this is just a really helpful handout, and we'll be referencing it a number of times as we walk through this. And to help us walk through this, we're going to ask ourselves six questions. We're going to investigate six questions on how God wants us to practice biblical relationships within the local church. And so number one is, how does God want us to practice loving one another? How does God want us to practice loving one another? The primary and single most important one another is love one another. That command stands over and above all the others. It's like an umbrella that covers all the others. All of the other one another's flow out of this one. They flow out of a love for one another. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 13. John chapter 13 will be in verses 34 and 35. We're actually going to be in a lot of scripture and reading a lot of scripture this morning, so you'll need to get used to flipping pages around quite a bit, so have those handy. And here in in John chapter 13, Jesus is with his disciples. They're in Jerusalem. They're in the upper room for the Last Supper. He is hours away from going to the cross. Judas has already left, and so Jesus is here with the eleven, and he provides a new commandment to the disciples. And he says, starting in verse 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have a love for one another. That word, love, when you read it, when you hear it, what do you think it means? Often, the first thing I think of when I, when I think of love is the, the emotion, the feelings, the warm affections that I have for people that I care about. Biblical love includes that, but it is so much more than that. A biblical love is one that loves the Lord with all of their heart, all of their soul, all of their strength, all of their mind. It is one that loves their neighbor as themselves. It is a selfless love, a self-giving love. That kind of love is one that transcends our circumstances. 
I also want you to notice something else about that word love. Here, it's a verb. It's an active verb. This love is a love of action. And in this use of love, that action is directed toward one another. And now Jesus provides a new commandment. It's new because it narrows the focus of the love. The disciples are not simply to have a love of neighbor. That's already been established in Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40, and Leviticus 19, 18. Here they are to love one another. The one another's here are those 11 that are left, because Judas already has taken off. You, disciples, love the disciples. Love one another. Jesus did not give this command to the crowds. He did not give this command to all those that were following him. He gave this command specifically and intimately to these 11, to the ones that he had spent three years developing these very close, intimate relationships with. The disciples are to love one another with a love that's modeled after the love that Christ had for them. Look back at verse 34. Even as I, you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. What kind of love did Christ have for them? His love was unconditional. These disciples were not the easiest bunch of guys to love. They often were foolish and said foolish things. He was, his love was humble. This is the creator, the king, becoming a man and spending three years with these disciples. His love was merciful. He did not provide what they deserved. His love was gracious. He gave them and privileged them based on nothing that they had done. His love was patient. Regardless of what they did or said, he was patient with them. His love was self-giving. His love was selfless. His love was sacrificial. And his love was demonstrated at great cost to himself. And he loved them when they didn't love him. He loved them when... he, he He's hours away from going to the cross. He loved them when he knew they were about to abandon him. when they were about to abandon him. The disciples were to have that kind of a love for one another. And the results of that love for one another, verse 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have a love for one another. All men are going to know, all the people around them are going to see that there's something different about these guys. And that love provides a witness and it provides a testimony to the world. And this new commandment that Jesus gives these disciples is a commandment for us. We are to love one another as Christ has loved us. We're to have close, intimate relationships with fellow believers for the purpose of pouring out our love on them. And our love, ultimately, will stand as a witness to an unbelieving world. They will see something different. They'll see something about the one that we follow. Our love for one another will, by demonstration, draw attention to Christ. And it will magnify him. This love is the outstanding and essential mark of the Christian. Another 
passage for love one another is found in 1 John chapter 3. So flip on over there. 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. In here, John was writing to a number of local churches, likely around Ephesus. And the recipients of this are going to be the people that are in those churches. I'm going to actually read verse 10 through verse 23. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which we have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. And we will know that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. And skip down actually to uh, verse 23. This is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Verse 10, he who does not love his brother is not of God. Our love for one another is evidence that we're believers. Verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brethren. Again, our love of the brethren is evidence that we've been saved. Verse 16, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren, Christ's supreme example. That love that Christ displayed by laying down his life is an example for us. We love one another by providing for worldly needs of our brethren. Verse 18, we we love indeed in truth. Our love has action that is supported by and with God's word. And in verse 23, we love one another just as he commanded us. Another love one another is found in 1 John chapter 4, verse 11. Some of you may not even have to flip a page. 1 John chapter 4, I'm actually going to start reading in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God. For God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Verse 10, he loved us when we didn't love him. We actually hated him and rebelled against him. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He sent the perfect sinless one from heaven to earth to become human, to be born and to live in a fallen sinful world. And he sent him to be the propitiation, the wrath satisfying sacrifice for our sins. 
Not for his sins, not for everyone's sins, but for our sins. His people, his church, he bore the wrath, the punishment for those that did not love him. In verse 11, if God so loved us like that, we also ought to love one another. Again, God's love, selfless, sacrificial, unconditional, merciful, gracious, enduring, costly, provided for our greatest need was reconciliation with God. Doing that which we were helpless to do. In light of all of that being said about loving one another, what should my love for one another look like? What should your love for one another look like? There needs to be others in my life, in your life here at GBC. I need to know what's going on in their lives so that I can love them, so I know how to love them. I need always to be looking for ways to love them earnestly, constantly, consistently. My love needs to be selfless with godly motivations. And everything that I have, time, knowledge, energy, possessions, are the Lord's and need to be available to love one another. It may be costly, it may be inconvenient, it may be a sacrifice, but we are to spend our lives in an effort to love one another. And and one of the things that I love when I look out here, I, I love seeing the cross section of seasons of life. That is also a circumstance that God has given so that different seasons of life can actually help in different ways to love one another. We have just a, a variety from newborns to, to empty nesters and everything in between. And God's sovereign over that, and he provides that in the local church so that we can help love one another in ways that are outside of our season of life. So those are the ways that God wants us to practice loving one another here in GBC. How does God want us to practice caring for one another? And if you look at the handout under care, you'll see care for one another, bear one another's burdens, be kind to one another, comfort one another, pray for one another. We're going to tackle care for one another, and that's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 25. And the context for this verse is actually all of chapter 12. And here Paul is addressing the local church at Corinth. Paul is dealing with division in the body in the Corinthian church. They had factions over who was baptized by who. And Paul is now addressing, addressing division within the church because of spiritual gifts. And the focus Paul has on here is the unity of believers as one body in Christ. Not as individuals, but unified for the common good. The different members of the body are necessary. And so I will start reading in verse 12, chapter 12, verse 12. For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I am not a part of the body. 
is it not for this reason any less a part of the body? And if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body, is it not for this reason any less a part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole, if the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them in the body, just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body, which seem to be weaker, are necessary. And those members of the body, which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow much more abundant honor. And on our less presentable members, become much more presentable. Whereas our more presentable members have no need of it, but God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. In verse 24, it says that God has so composed the body, dot, 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 to verse 25, so that there may be no division within the body. God does not want division, but that each member would have the same care for one another. Paul's contrasting the division with the care we have for one another. And Paul provides two examples of this in verse 26. And this is the unity that we have in suffering and in rejoicing. God puts different members in the body with different skills and resources and different capacities for the purpose of providing the same care for the body. God doesn't want division or factions. He wants them unified in caring for those that are suffering and unified around rejoicing for those that are rejoicing. And and over the years, we've had so many examples of where there's been tragedy or uh, suffering that has happened and seeing the body unified around those people, those couples, those families to care for them. That unity is what God has intended for the body. And we also get the opportunity to rejoice. Uh, just, I think it was this past weekend when the Schneiders, when it was announced that they had actually formally been able to adopt uh, their son. And we got to rejoice with them. And then as you know, newborns and they get to hold them up and everything, the body gets to rejoice around those things. When there's a, an engagement, a marriage, those things are where the, the body gets to be unified around those that are rejoicing. And so, so God has provided that so that we can care for one another in those ways. Another way God wants us to practice caring for one another is to bear one another's burdens. And that's found in Galatians chapter 6. Verse 2. Galatians 6, verse 2. Paul's providing this church, this command to the local church in Galatia. <clears throat> I'm going to actually read verse 1 and 2. Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. This verse is dealing with sin and temptation. 
and restoration. To bear means to carry something burdensome, to carry it with endurance. And burden means a heavy load, which is just difficult to lift or to carry. And believers in the local church are being called to walk with a fellow believer to help them bear the burden of sin and temptation, ultimately onto repentance and restoration. Sin and temptation are significant burdens. And we need help. We need help from one another. And this is not just a pastor's job. This is a job for all of us. One of my former pastors said, you're either bearing a burden or you're helping someone else bear theirs. Those are ways that we get to to practice caring for one another. How does God want us to practice edifying one another? Let's look at our handout again. Under edification, you'll find build up one another, admonish one another, speak truth to one another, speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, encourage one another, seek after that which is good for one another, stimulate one another to love and good deeds. The first one we're going to tackle is build up one another, and that's found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11. Flip on over to 1 Thessalonians 5. And I'm going to read verses. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. So this passage is dealing with the day of the Lord. These believers had questions and concerns about when the day of the Lord was going to take place. And so Paul proceeds to encourage them and to build them up. He explains truth about believers, that they're not in darkness, they're not overtaken, they're not destined for wrath, they're destined for salvation in Christ. They are sons of light, sons of the day. And therefore, since for unbelievers there will be wrath, and therefore since for believers there will not be wrath, encourage one another and build up one another. And that is precisely what Paul did as he was giving them, giving them this command. He was actually building them up and encouraging them with the truth about the day of the Lord and the implications of, of those things for believers. This assumes that we're in close communication with believers and spend time with them so that we can encourage them and to build them up. 
We know them so that we know where they need to be built up and encouraged. Another way that God wants us to practice edifying one another is to admonish one another. And that's found in Romans 15, 14. Romans 15, verse 14. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. The word here for admonish, some translations may say instruct, is the word nuthateo, which may sound familiar, as some of you have heard of nuthetic counseling, biblical counseling. This word for admonish simply means to counsel about the avoidance or the cessation of an improper course of conduct, to admonish, to warn, to instruct. But this is not simply instruction for knowledge's sake. It's instruction with the purpose of having someone avoid or cease to do something. And when this is done, when this admonishment is done, it's not admonishing with our authority on what they, what we think they should or should not do, but it's specifically using scripture as the authority for what they should and shouldn't do, what they should stop doing, what they should be cautioned about. This is lovingly going to your brother or sister and warning them about something that needs to cease, something they need to avoid. And we're to do this with one another. And Paul here is affirming that these Roman believers are able to do this with one another. And all believers bear the responsibility to admonish one another. Again, this is not just elders or deacons. This is all of us with one another. We're commanded to do this. And Paul affirms here that believers are equipped to do so. And so are you guys. And if the body is doing this well, what implication is there? If the body is admonishing, if individuals within the body are, are faithfully admonishing one another, what's the implication? We will be admonished. We as individuals will be admonished. And often that's not done perfectly. Um, and our hearts need to be prepared to be admonished to listen, be quick to listen and slow to speak and to take those things to heart and pray and, and work through what has been lovingly brought to us. And likely, none of us wants to be confrontational. We all like to be encouraging, right? We like to be that kind of a person. But if one of our brothers or sisters is actually in sin, what is the most loving thing that we can do for them? We can shed light on it. We can expose it. And we can lovingly admonish them for it. So those are the ways that God wants us to practice edifying one another. Number four, how does God want us to practice being humble with one another? Humble. And under, on the handout again, under humility, we have give preference to one another be subject to one another, regard one another as more important than yourself, confess your sins to one another, be humble toward one another. 
We're going to start with give preference to one another, found in Romans chapter 12, verse 10. So just a couple pages back. This command given to the believers at the church in Rome. And this section of Romans has some 25 different exhortations for believers. And the section that our verse in deals specifically with family relationships and specifically the family of God. Let's read chapter 12, verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. And so we're actually, ours is going to be the second half that, that give preference to one another in honor. And that give preference or outdo, some translations may say outdo, means to do with eagerness, to do exceedingly, lead the way, go before, precede, to prefer. Honor means high respect, high esteem. This is to show genuine appreciation and admiration for fellow believers by putting them first. By putting them first. We're to go before, to be proactive so that we can give honor. Showing genuine appreciation and admiration for one another in the family of God. We're, we're quick to show respect. We're quick to show admiration. We're quick to acknowledge the accomplishments of others. We're quick to show genuine love by not being jealous or envious. And, and why would we, we not be doing this? Because of our pride? We're more, we're more, we, we are more focused on ourselves? It takes humility to get outside of ourselves to see others at all, let alone to see them first. Another way that God wants us to practice being humble with one another is to confess your sins to one another. And that's found in James chapter 5, verse 16. James chapter 5, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Confess your sins to one another. Confess simply means to make an admission of wrongdoing or sin, to confess, to admit. And we're commanded, commanded to do this continually with one another. And if we're being honest with ourselves, this is not something that we actually desire to do. Sin wants to stay hidden, private, secret. And you, when you mix in our pride with it, we can often run from confession. But God wants my sin and he wants your sin exposed. He wants it dealt with in, a, in the loving fellowship of other believers. And this is God's kindness. He wants sin exposed so that it can be repented of. So that we can turn from our sins and turn to Christ. And he wants the sinner protected as much as possible. We talk about Matthew 18. Some of you have been here when we've had some of those experiences. And Matthew 18 is set up so that when there's, through the various steps, the first step is just believers going to believers. And the next step is expanding that circle a little bit. Bring along two or three witnesses. And if that doesn't work, then expand the circle. Tell it to the church. And if that doesn't work, ultimately they've demonstrated in themselves 
that they're acting as a non-believer and they're not to participate in the church. And that is trying to limit who is aware of sin. That's, that is God's kindness. So that there would be the best opportunity for repentance. So that there would be the best opportunity for restoration. And that's what we're getting at here. It's God's kindness that we get to confess our sins to those that know sin. They know the power of sin. They, they deal with sin themselves and they get to help us in repentance from sin. And we need to be in close, intimate relationships to humbly practice this one another. Number five, how does God want us to practice serving one another? On our handout here, under service, you'll find serve one another, be hospitable to one another, and to wash one another's feet. We're going to start with serve one another, found in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. I'm going to start reading in verse 8. 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 8. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. And each one, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterance of utterances of God, whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Out of a fervent love for one another, we are to serve. Serve here is diakoneo, which is where we get the word for deacon. It simply means personal service, a discharge of a loving service. And in Greek culture, this word had the meaning of waiting tables. And for the Greeks, that kind of service was looked down upon as undignified. It was a, not an uncommon saying for them to say, we Greeks are born to rule, not serve. Our service to one another is out of a love for one another. And it can be very humbling. It can be very exhausting. And as we serve one another, pouring ourselves out for one another, we're serving, verse 11, by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Our loving service to and for one another is all about the other person. And it's done in God's strength. And it's all to be done for the glory of God. Another way that God wants us to practice serving one another is to wash one another's feet. And that's found in John chapter 13, verse 14. And the context here, we're kind of Coming right back to where we started, context here is uh, in the upper room with the disciples. Uh, for the Last Supper, but this is prior to Judas leaving, so he's actually here, so all 12 of them are present. I'm going to start reading in verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. 
Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord. And Peter said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. There was a lot of dirt and dust everywhere in Israel, and it was not uncommon for this dust to be upwards of an inch thick. And when it rained, it turned into mud, and wearing only sandals, you can imagine what their feet looked like. And at the entrance of every Jewish home, there would have been large pots of water so that everybody that came in could wash their feet. For a slave, this was the most menial task they were given, to wash the feet of all the guests. And when Jesus and the disciples arrived in the upper room, there was no slave. One of the twelve should have offered to do it, but the twelve were too busy arguing about which one of them was the greatest, from Luke twenty-two twenty-four. They were too busy being selfish. They were too busy thinking about themselves and their perceived greatness to see the humble service that needed to be done. So Jesus, God of the universe, the King, the Messiah, who already had humbled himself by coming to earth, took on, took another step even lower. Jesus, by his example, displayed incredible, humble service to the disciples. And we're to do this in like manner with each other. We're to get low and follow our Lord's humble example of service to one another. And we don't exactly have the same dirty feet problem, but there are plenty of menial tasks, humble tasks, that we can serve one another with. And one of the things I think about when I go through this particular one another is, uh, I don't know how many of you know new Johnny Beckman, um, even when he was alive, he people still didn't know who he was because he so transparently, humbly served this body. And everybody in the body benefited from his service. He was one of those that was cleaning up and doing stuff behind the scenes, the, the humble tasks that people wouldn't want to do um, in and of themselves. It's, but it, they're tasks that needed to get done, and he joyfully served in those ways before the Lord took him home. And nobody knew who he was, and he just humbly did those tasks. And that, that's always one of the things I think about when we step through this particular one another. Those are the ways that God want, wants us to practice serving one another. Number six, how does God want us to practice being unified with one another? 
And so under unity on our handout, again, you'll see be devoted to one another. Let us not judge one another. Be of the same mind as one another. Accept one another. Greet one another. Wait for one another. Do not consume one another. Let us not challenge one another. Let us not envy one another. Show tolerance for one another. Bear with one another. Do not lie to one another. Live in peace with one another. Do not speak against one another. Do not complain against one another. Fellowship with one another. We're going to go back to Romans chapter 12, verse 10, and we're going to hit on be devoted to one another. So, Romans chapter 12, verse 10. The first half of verse 10 is, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Some translations may say love instead of devoted, but this isn't the same love that we've been talking about earlier. The Greek word behind this means The Greek word behind devoted means the natural love that occurs within the family, the kindred love, the warm affections, and it could be translated lovingly loving. The Greek word behind brotherly love is a word that I know that everybody here is familiar with. It's Philadelphia, like the city. That word literally means love for brother or sister, a blood relative. And that is the affection, the tender, kind, caring, concerned, warm feelings and affections that we have for a blood relative. And when you put all that together, you could arrange it to be be lovingly loving with one another with loving love. And that's why I'm not a translator. Uh, Believers are to be devoted to each other, having affections and love for each other that are reserved for blood relatives. Immediate family, brothers, sisters, parents, children. And here, Paul applies that family love, that blood love, to Christians. Believers are brothers and sisters in Christ. We have one father. We are all children adopted into the family of Christ. There are things that I will do and say to a close family member that I wouldn't necessarily say or do with a friend, just in general. But that's the kind of unity that we're to have with one another within the family unit that God has ordained. Husbands, wives, parents, children, brothers, sisters. That's the relationship that we have with one another here in the local church, here at GBC. And we're commanded to have those warm, familial affections for one another here at GBC. Another way that we get... Another way that God wants us to practice being unified with one another is to let us not judge one another. Let's actually just one page different. Uh, Romans chapter 14, verse 13. Romans chapter 14, verse 13. And the context here is all of chapter 14, and and chapter 14 is dealing with conscience. I'm actually going to start in verse 1 of chapter 14. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, and he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. The one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. 
Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. And he who eats does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat. And he gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow, to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each of us, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Verse 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather this determine this not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. There are two issues that Paul addresses in this chapter. One is dealing with food, and the other is dealing with certain days being regarded as more important than others. We have weak believers. We have strong believers. The strong believers can have this attitude of contemptuous superiority, and the weak believers can have an attitude of self-righteousness. And Paul provides the command not to judge one another. These issues are not in the area of Christian liberty and practice. These, these areas are neither commanded nor forbidden by Scripture. So they are personal preference. They're historical tradition, not doctrinal or moral compromise. God has accepted both the strong and the weak believer. And if God himself does not make an issue of such things, what right do his children have to do that? That doesn't mean we don't talk about our preferences, but we don't hold our preference, preferences as though they are biblical principles. And we don't judge our brothers and sisters that don't hold the same preferences. And we certainly don't regard them with contempt. That's another way that God wants us to practice being unified with one another is to not judge each other's preferences. We've investigated six questions with how God wants us to practice these biblical relationships here within the local church, within GBC. I have a few more questions to ask. Can one be obedient to scripture and not be practicing the one another's? Can one be obedient to scripture and not be practicing the one another's? Another question, can one obediently practice the one another's and not be plugged into a local church? Can one obediently practice the one another's and not be plugged into a local church? Can one effectively practice the one another's by only participating in body life on the Lord's day? Can one effectively practice the one another's by only participating in body life on the Lord's day? We all live here in America and in this country this country is very consumeristic. We're impacted by it. We can't get away from it. And given that, it's very easy to bring that kind of consumeristic attitude into our view of the church. It's very common to not only focus on what I get out of a relationship or a Bible study or a small group, or it's common to only focus on what I get out of a 
relationship, a Bible study, a small group, or even the worship service. I view how well something is going based on solely what I felt I got out of it. This is a view of relationships within the local church that scripture does not support. The obedient Christian, you and me, must be in close biblical relationships with fellow believers here at GBC. And the evidence of those close biblical relationships is the practice of one another's with the people here at GBC. And here at GBC, the the primary vehicle we have for that, for the practicing of the biblical relationships, is small groups. Uh, As Smed taught a number of weeks ago, we didn't want to call them subset, subsection groups, because that's really what we're doing. We're taking the church as a whole, because it's hard. There's four to five hundred people here on a Sunday morning. You cannot practice these effectively with four or five hundred people only on the Lord's Day. And so what we as elders have decided we wanted to do to enable that is to break up the church into subsections. And we've called those things small groups. So small is not necessarily an adjective of the size, but uh, it's a subsection of the church so that we can have this one another care for each other so that we can practice these biblical relationships effectively and we can all just be obedient to scripture in those things as we care and love and, and practice these with one another. One thing I'm just really thankful for as I have surveyed scripture is is I'm thankful for the way that God has composed the body to put us in relationship with each other. I'm so thankful for the way he's provided so much instruction for us. As we go through our reading plans, as we read through the New Testament, these things are just going to pop off the page to us. I'm so thankful for the believers here at GBC that I have close relationships with, that I get an opportunity to practice these one another's with them. And I'm sure if you've been here for any amount of time, you've also experienced that love, care, edification, service, and humility and unity of your fellow believers here at GBC. So hopefully this time uh, was able to provide some some familiarity or further um, emphasis on the one another's so that they stand out in scripture so that you'll be practicing them or practicing them more effectively to, to excel still more here within the body and specifically the body of Christ called GBC. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time that we've spent surveying your word, looking at many different passages, uh, looking at many different one another's, and we did not cover anywhere near all of them. Lord, your, your word is so rich and full of them for these things. Lord, I do pray that as we come across them in your word, that your spirit would apply them to our hearts so that we would live them out with one another here with the, the believers here at GBC. And it would just bear much fruit. And Jesus, you would get all the glory for it. And it's always in your great name we pray. Amen.